0: Hello, and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Asset prices don't always go up, at least not in a straight line. And while the crypto complex is having a great start to 2023, last year was a particularly painful reminder to many digital asset traders that the number one rule in trading is managing your book to live another day. It's ironic that in a space that most consider at the bleeding edge of technology, many of the largest trading houses and hedge funds have relied on basic tools and spreadsheets for so long to manage their crypto risk. The irony is not lost on Kyle Downey, CEO and co-founder of Cloudwall, a fintech entrepreneur looking to ship state-of-the-art risk management software to better serve a growing base of institutional traders and investors in digital assets. I met Kyle when he was raising his seed round in early 2022, juggling the demands of a pre-seed startup, balancing family life, and navigating heightened risk aversion from investors following the Ukraine invasion. Three traits come to mind when getting to know Kyle, grit, intellect, and perfectionism. As an engineer, Kyle quickly realized he enjoyed building technology for traders and translating their requirements in software and data infrastructure. He launched the digital asset risk management firm Cloudwall in late 2021, shortly after calling time on his 17-year career at Morgan Stanley, where he was a managing director in the bank's automated risk trading department. Through smart planning and thorough execution, he has assembled a world-class team of ex-colleagues and recruits distributed globally, all working towards a common goal. Cloudwall's flagship product, Serenity, will help investors understand market, liquidity, credit, operational and other risks both at the level of individual assets or whole sectors the startup counts amongst his backers prominent early stage fintech investors such as roger Ehrenberg and illuminate financial in our chat kyle discusses his unconventional path to wall street cloudwall's founding story and the challenges its platform is striving to solve i find kyle's obsession with product quality and design to be energizing he clearly cares as much about what the problem is as to how he is solving it, whether it's features, pricing models, computations, or creating a taxonomy standard for digital assets. Kyle graduated from Williams college with a degree in physics and English. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: I was born in New York city and I would say one attribute kind of growing up was just moving around a lot. We went from New York city to long Island up to New Hampshire. So most of that time was in New Hampshire, but several towns there, mostly along the seacoast. In terms of early interests, and this kind of directly connects what to what I ended up doing professionally, I got into computers and computer programming at a very young age, I think starting in fourth grade or something like that, playing around with BASIC all the way through the bulletin boards through college with the early days of the internet. So that's kind of been a common thing that whole time. And the other thing, which kind of happy to talk about a little bit more, because I think it ends up being relevant as a founder. The other common theme was writing. That was just writing that whole time. And that's in different forms kind of been a part of my life, including the startup experience this
0: whole time. So is it fair to say that you enjoy writing in general?
1: Yeah. When I was Through middle school and high school, writing plays, novels, poetry, short stories, that was a huge part in the earlier part of my life. And nowadays, as a founder, I generally am kind of the writer for the company in terms of the newsletter and a lot of the posts. And a good part of just the pitching process and the sales process, it comes in. So it's not necessarily creative writing the way when I was younger, but it's definitely something that has kind of continued through as a theme that whole time. And I do it as well, just because it's something that I enjoy.
0: Makes sense. And if you think about how important it is to articulate a vision, a value proposition, a solution to problems, codifying corporate culture from an early stage, and as it evolves over time. The ability to communicate both verbally and in writing is very important. It's also interesting that anchored notion that you're either a numbers person or a writer. And I actually tend to disagree with that. If you're going back to the days of Pascal, for example, mathematician, scientist, but excellent writer. And in the French system that I went through, the education system there, you really have to focus on A wide variety of different topics, including writing. So it's interesting to hear from you that you're passionate about that side of what you do. So, what prompts your decision as far as college and what were you interested in at the time?
1: So, when I went at the time, I think the thing I was most interested in was law. And I thought that's what I was going to do, that computers were kind of this side thing. I had also Gotten in high school into physics. And that ended up being, I did a double degree, sort of physics and English. I would say the larger part was physics. And on the side, it kind of started as a work study job. I was still doing computers. And that was kind of a theme running through in terms of writing data analysis software, modeling software in astrophysics. I think the very first C program I wrote was related to modeling of a neutron star. It wasn't anything functional. It was sort of this very geeky STEM computer program. But I was really hooked by the programming part of it. And when I kind of came to the end of college, I was kind of looking at what to do. I had studied science and I had enjoyed it. That was something that I had kind of gone in with an intention as something that I wanted to focus on but i found the building was actually the thing that i liked more the building in support of science you know i worked in my last year in the lab of a newly hired experimental physicist helping build the lab equipment but also the data analysis software as i kind of reflected on it was thinking about okay what's the next step and i was i had gotten into a phd program for grad school in physics i realized that Actually, what I liked better was all the engineering around it, and particularly the software. And of course, this is 1996, and kind of the ramp up in dot com, I think I shocked more than a few people when I said, "Okay, well, never mind. (laughs) I'm not going to do physics anymore. I'm going to go be a web programmer. So all of those things kind of, they were there all along, but they were secondary at the time. There were not things that I kind of went in and said, you know, freshman year, I'm going to do this. It wasn't part of my study plan. I never took a comp sci course that whole time. It was always like a hobby, a thing that I did on the side for work. I built websites for academic departments to make money on the side. It wasn't something that was part of the plan originally, but it had been part of my life the whole
0: time. Understood. And so we see here the development of what I like to refer to as like a professional DNA, right? It's like this theme. And when we get to your banking career as well, where you're building the infrastructure, you're enabling the science itself, right? You're providing the infrastructure. The analogy right now is you're building infrastructure to support professionals out there in the market speculating, trading, investing, and you're giving them the toolkit, you're giving them a way to analyze process the data, make better decisions. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, that's a good capsule summary. I sometimes describe myself as a technologist who plays nicely with quants and traders. I'm neither a quant nor a trader. I didn't have the mathematical shops to go hardcore on the quant side, but can have a reasonably intelligent conversation with a quant about modeling and what they need. And similarly on the trading side, you know, I'm a licensed Trader of my series 24, but I've never managed risk. I've never run a book or been on a desk except in support of the software that was needed by traders, but still could have that conversation with the trader about what they needed and try to understand on the technology side what was most important to them and how the system was supposed to work. And often that translation process of kind of translating from you know model and business problem to code it's a challenge and i kind of fell into that spot as someone who was kind of not any of those things fully i wasn't a hardcore computer scientist i wasn't a quant i wasn't a trader the thing that i was able to do was to kind of talk to all those parties and reasonably understand what each side needed and if you look at you know the risk problem your typical Risk system, it's a data layer, which is fundamentally a technical problem, but you need to understand the modeling of the data, which is about the business knowledge. There's the quant models that sit on top, and that's having a good understanding of really what a data scientist or a proper financial engineer requires. And then there's finally the tools that are sitting in front of a trader that have to make sense to a portfolio manager. And it almost then impinges on like usability and design on the product side. So, you know, I was a master of none of those things, but ended up in this place because it's hard to find people at that intersection. One thing they tell you as CEO is you kind of have to figure out what are the things that only you can do because your time is always limited. And for me, that operating at that intersection right now, at least, is one of those things.
0: Makes sense. And so, in one of the things that I think is a unique differentiator in your profile as an entrepreneur, is you've spent quite a bit of time at a bank. And why don't you walk us through so your progression there? And you talk about being sort of this translator and technologist able to interpret requirements and translate them into machinery, into engineering. Talk to us about the progression of how you built sort of your street cred within the bank
1: so i'll actually start with the bank that i left because it ended up being part of the story of the 17 years that i spent at morgan stanley so in the late 90s i spent two years at goldman sachs so at that time firm wide risk was a very unusual structure it was not part of the technology function at goldman sachs i actually sat directly under the board This was before the Strat organization came in and all of the things that really GS became famous for in terms of risk and systems. So there was a very small tech team that was part of it. And in those two years, so this was back in the days at 85 Broad Street. (laughs) So even the geography of kind of changed over time. I was really interested in the technology problems of risk and at the time I actually wasn't interested in the finance side and I had all these opportunities to learn from these people around me the risk managers my boss at the time it was like doing a course on you know bond pricing and to be perfectly honest I was like yeah, I don't have time for that like that's not interesting I'm interested in writing code and solving problems and making it faster so comes to the end of that time in early 2000 Decided to move on to do my very first semi entrepreneurial thing, which was I left to become an independent contractor. I kind of went back to web programming for a little while. Year 2000, deciding to become a web programmer working for dot coms, not a good decision. Was in the wilderness for a good period of time post dot com crash because of that. But then a funny thing happened I started to really miss Wall Street. I missed the energy of it and the challenge. And I started thinking, you know, I had a chance to learn about this and I didn't take it. And because of the time, this is, of course, the transition at GS from a partnership to a public company, I had some restrictions. I actually could not immediately go back to another bank. So I did something very different for a couple of years, which is I went to work for HBO and was building video on demand systems. So this is way before HBO Max and all of that. So spent three years there. Kind of came to the end of that period where I had those restrictions. It was like, I want to go back to Wall Street. And I talked to BlackRock Solutions Group, so the early Aladdin group. And I talked to Morgan Stanley and a couple of other places. And it kind of came down to those two. Ended up choosing to take a job in credit derivatives IT in back office in 2004 at MS. I told that part of the history because that actually informed then that mindset subsequently, which is I'm actually going to learn about this. I'm going to get close to the domain because I want to stick with it this time. In the early part of my career, I HBO at three years was the longest I'd I'd stayed any place. And so the other thing. Funny story, when I interviewed at BlackRock, the MD sat me down for the very final interview and we kind of went through all of it and said, yeah, we're going to make an offer. Like We've kind of got a position, but I want to give you a piece of advice, a piece of career advice, because I'm looking at your CV right now and I'm looking at how many times you've moved around since you graduated from college. And I want you to make me a promise, whether you come to work with us or not, or you go someplace else, stay there at least five years because you're probably unemployable if you like leave after a year in your next job. So I'm interviewing with Morgan Stanley HR at the start of the job. And they're like, how long are you going to stay? I'm like, at least five years. And so the funny thing, of course, is I stayed 17 years. It was something that really became professionally important to me, that kind of staying there and really kind of going in deep on that particular role.
0: It's interesting because as I unpack your description of how you started at Morgan Stanley and why you stayed, think about the impact of that one conversation. There's something to be said about the impact of words. I don't know that person was really expecting this to have that much of an impact on you. And if you contrast that with the era that we're in now, where computer scientists, engineers, but other professions are jumping around the notion of tenure, of loyalty, is sort of gone out the window, especially in the tech space. For better or worse, right? There's an argument for and against it. But it's interesting that you took his advice to heart and ended up really sticking with it. Probably thinking at the time, as I listened to you, I realized that you know we're talking almost 20 years ago now, right? And I think the mentality and the approach was very different. I remember when I recruited people for my first company, I would sort of look at that four to five-year tenure in, on resumes as a filter. To be perfectly honest, I kind of still do. I think we go through life in sort of these four to five-year cycles, whether we stay at the same company or building a business or going through our career. You know, the other thing I'll say is there has been sort of an overglorification of the very young founder. And I think it it goes back to sort of the myth of the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates, the dropouts, the folks that were able to very quickly jump into that CEO role and thrive. People often forget that it took them a decade to even get on the map and that they're also statistical outliers. I think there's something to be said about someone as we're getting sort of the inception of Cloudwall here. Someone with experience, someone who's able to quickly assemble a team, someone who has a network, both internally and externally, not to mention the wisdom that comes with making decisions over time that are very hard to aggregate and acquire at a very young stage in your career. So I think it's a differentiator, I think, in your background versus I think a lot of founders that go out and raise money. And I want to insist on that point because there's value to investors, to stakeholders in investing in someone who has stood the test of time and has a network in order to be able to execute. So when you leave Morgan Stanley and decide to start Cloudwall, what is the initial motivation? Are you by yourself? Do you have co-founders? How does the group come together? And what is the initial thesis? What is really prompting you to leave behind a very prominent, high-paying job to start this new business? So... The story
1: starts in the summer of 2021, and it has a connection to the pandemic in terms of timing. So I started alone, and it actually started with that moment around June of 2021, at least here in New York City, where the masks were starting to come off. We were starting in the late summer to encourage people to start coming back to the office. Things were starting to normalize. So for personal reasons, I had reached a point probably before 17 years that I wanted to do this, but I made a conscious decision to not do it during the pandemic. So that was maybe timing wise, the trigger. We were taking a family holiday in New Hampshire close to my parents and started thinking again about this. And importantly, I had a little bit of extra time during that break. And kind of the other thing that I had parked during the pandemic was my interest in crypto, which had gone back to 2013. So I was spending some time on the side just looking around again. And you know the history here. If you stopped looking at crypto from between summer of 2020 and summer of 2021, you missed the summer of DeFi. You missed the further ramp up in institutional crypto. And the latter was the thing that I had been keeping an eye on for a long time as something of particular interest to me. And I started looking around again and started making the first connections. I think actually the very first crypto company I talked to, not for a job, but like just sort of exploring and getting into the space, was actually Copper. So one of the vendor, important vendor on the custody side in the institutional crypto space. So I started looking at that. I started looking at DeFi. And the biggest thing that came out of it was this thought about institutional DeFi. And I wrote an essay, actually, that fall that tried to map out that thought process, which was essentially this. What if institutional DeFi becomes like the dominant mode for trading and investing? What if the buy side starts trading entirely peer-to-peer? And what does that do to the sell side? What does that do to the banks? But I literally started going through the trading desks, like, who's most affected, who does okay, who's affected earlier. And, you know, as I went through that and started thinking about the constraints on the banks in terms of their ability to respond to that challenge, because like one kind of side interest around like leadership studies and startups over the years was, you know, going back to this idea of disruptive innovation and the innovator's dilemma. And I started thinking about the innovators dilemma in the context of the banks in the face of that challenge. And, you know, they face a number of issues confronting that particular disruption. The first is you kind of never want to undermine a profitable business. That's often the biggest blocker for the incumbents. But the second thing was the regulatory piece. So looking at it, it's like, you know, there's like this three to five year window where, the incumbents probably will realize that something has to be done but they can't do something and from a startup perspective one of the key ingredients is time that you have this window where you know the really big incumbents are not who could just demolish are not able to come in and so i was looking at what was going on saying look there's kind of a moment where this is going to start taking off And this intersection of this interest in crypto and trading and technology is going to come together. And the things that would maybe make me hesitate to do that, namely, whether it's BlackRock or someone else is just going to come in and crush the startup, this moment where they actually can't and they won't. And is it possible to take advantage of that? And so that was really the origin of it. And I resigned like six weeks after that. So the decision came together very quickly. This was before identifying co-founders, before even really fully settling on what we were going to build. It was more, you know, I want to do something at the intersection of capital markets, technology and crypto. And, you know, at that point, going back a very long time, like I said, I left GS in 2000 to do a startup of a very small kind, you know, just independent contracting. And that was kind of the other thing that had been there the whole time, but I kind of wanted to go back to that, and I wanted to do with crypto so it was all those things coming together, you know the end of the pandemic, this kind of moment where things seemed to be taking off, where you know potentially there was shielding due to the lack of regulatory clarity, and so made the decision to jump. then I had a ninety day um notice. So there's then three months (laughs) of thinking and planning and starting to explore what might we do and who might I work with for it. Uh, And uh, that then was kind of like the next stage of
0: the startup. So how did the group come together? Did you basically scope out the effort and then sought to fill in the functional roles within the organization? Operating more so initially, at least as a solo co founder? Or did you involve other people as part of the gestation process and the ideation process and the mapping of the functional roles beyond the co founding team? Which one of the two was that?
1: It was the latter, definitely. And I think this, from what I understand, is very common in like the early pre establishment phase of things that you have a number of people coming in and out, some of whom are. The mutual decision-making process of like, do you want to come in and do this? Is this a fit as a founding team? And so there was a bit of ferment in the early days of people trying it out, coming in and out. And we were all kind of taking part in those discussions about what do we do early customer development interviews. So it didn't settle at first, actually. And there were several, not so much pivots as just Kind of trying things on for size as particular models and what we might do. And that some of those explorations ended up suggesting people who were brought in, most notably my co founder, Jiang Wee. Some of those early conversations, as we were looking at the regulatory landscape, started centering around Singapore and the MAS's innovations in the space on the regulatory side. And we were looking at ideas that we thought would be possible earliest in Singapore. And so it happens that 14 years ago in Shanghai, Jiaing, myself and another person at MS had overlapped. I was temporarily running fixed income IT and Jiaying was running FX operations and APAC, uh, which at the time was based out of Shanghai. There were In both cases, we were building up offices in Shanghai. And so I heard through this mutual friend that she was leaving her banking job and actually interviewing and heading home to Singapore. So because in that sort of early ferment and conversations, Singapore kept coming up. And you know, part of the thought process was, well, if we're gonna do that, we need somebody who has strong capital markets networks and you know could potentially one day face off with the MAS actually in Singapore. And so This just, I found out about this and approached Dying and asked her if she wanted to join that group that was kind of going through that ideation process. And as it turned out, I wasn't aware of this. She had been talking to another fintech less than a year before, exploring a role. And it had been in the back of her mind of after 20 plus years in banking, I kind of want to go into the fintech space or crypto or startups or something like that. In multiple ways, a very interesting coincidence of timing, that she was making that move at the time that we were having these discussions. And she just happened to have been unusually receptive to this idea of maybe leaving her long career in banking to to do this. So she joined in. And there was a third co-founder at the time who was part of those discussions, Ilya Kulyaten, who I had been talking to actually well before that, but more just sort of like shared interest in crypto and trading. Initially, he was in Japan at the time. We initially connected through LinkedIn. So the three of us were kind of part of that process. And it kind of started with almost a filtering of trading, like set up a hedge fund versus service provider, do a technology company. So that was a kind of key early decision. And we said, look, given the skill sets within the group, Building something for hundreds of hedge funds is probably closer to the expertise of this group than building one hedge fund, especially given the legal and fundraising obstacles around that. But that was in frame. We considered that. And there were some variations on the idea. And the second thing was retail versus institutional. That was actually a key early decision. And I think this is something some startups in the space have gotten wrong, which is, oh, we could be retail oriented or it could be institutional or it's an even better story. We could be both. And I think that's actually a mistake. I think in a startup, you have to pick. And a startup that services retail is a very different startup than one that services institutional. And if you looked at the backgrounds of the people who were involved in the early days, it was very clear that sort of like a high touch setup focused on a small number of very demanding clients was a far better fit. And then if you added the regulatory piece, that we were all particularly sensitive to the regulatory risk, we felt there's a lot more clarity around the institutional crypto business than the retail crypto business. And so we just said, all right, look, any idea that has a retail component, we're going to fence that up.
0: Makes sense. And, you know, it's very clear you describe a very, very thorough process as to how you arrive at the area of focus. Focus is absolutely key. And Therein lies sort of the the entrepreneur's dilemma, right? Because not only do you have to focus, if you're going to succeed, you have to be right about what you're focusing on. And that's the risk that the entrepreneur takes. I want to go back also to your career and the time at which you decide to start Cloudwall. And it sounds to me like your co-founders also had already been in the industry for quite some time. The ability to put together a team that is able to think through these problems, that also is could be a trusted counterpart in the dialogue with potential clients, right? That's also very important, right? Because when you're fresh out of college, if you sit with, as you say, some of the most demanding clients in the world, hedge funds, buy side trading firms, you need to have credibility, right? Because people are going to put money on the line using your technology. I want to make sure you understand exactly what they do and what they need. What capital did you start with? We're talking about a few months here, presumably also at this stage, co-founders have, you know, there's all these other personal things that you need to solve for, right? You have a family, you have a burn rate, people have mortgages. How do you pay for this over the first few months? So
1: that early process, all of us were unpaid. We had no employees at the time. There were minimal expenses that were basically all on my credit card. And the first target was actually to establish the company, open a bank account, get sort of legal and accounting in place so I could expense what I was carrying on my credit card to the company and kind of get it properly on the books by the time we closed the books on 2021. And it was a near-run thing, actually, to get that. And so what we ended up doing was I wrote a safe That was the initial pre-seed capital for the company out of my savings from all of those years. And that allowed us to start the pre-seed fundraising process. That allowed us to bring in our first employee the following month in January. And just the basic expenses of getting started. So we started with 100 k in the U.S. bank account. We established Singapore. We journaled a small amount of money over to Singapore to get that started as well. And at that point, we'd pulled together the pitch deck. So this was December of 2021 and had lined up a bunch of angels, friends, and family to talk to to get the next tranche of capital to actually allow us to start the build. At that point, we also had the plan. We knew what we were building and what for. And you were head of e-trading technology for equities at Morgan Stanley, like people will take the meeting. At least like they, they won't necessarily listen. And, you know, they may, your idea may be badly timed and wrong. But that network of people who used to work for me, people who'd moved on, who were former MS traders, who then went off and started a hedge fund, people in functions now at other banks that were in, say, prime brokerage, and they were facing off with hedge funds. The challenge that we faced was to bootstrap a high-touch sales operation from nothing. And if we hadn't had the networks for the three of us, 50-plus years of capital markets company experience, we wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have been like, who the hell are these guys? And why should we take their call? And so that helped. It didn't guarantee success. But to your point earlier about like there are some... There are some advantages starting a company older because you just you have all of those connections. And then building the company, we absolutely mind people we used to work with as the first resource for hiring. And so you know there are several people in the company who come from our history. Are this is actually the third time our CTO has worked for me. He worked for me twice before at Morgan Stanley in two different teams. And so Marcus was involved relatively early on as well and at the time literally I was having investors tell me like and they were right as we were fundraising you being both CTO and CEO is not a plan like that won't work when is the CTO coming in so if we hadn't had that network and those connections to again I first hired Marcus I think in 2008 Shanghai you know to reach back and say hey do you want to take a risk and do you want to do this? If instead we'd done you know, like the classic thing, go out to recruiters and you know screen CVs and spend months and months and months, the company would have expired before it started. So that ability to bootstrap the network of people, both on the client side, the investor side, but the talent side as well, was really, really important for us. It allowed us to assemble a really good team very, very quickly. And that's grown over time uh it's five quants, five engineers myself, and Jaing now, but the distance we were able to go from that open the bank account in December to raise the seed in May, finish raising the seed in May, like that sort of whiplash speed of getting it off the ground, like i don't think I know for certain there's no way we could have done that right out of college.
0: I agree with that, especially with the climate. And also just the credibility, not just to get the meeting, but build confidence on the part of investors that you had the chops to make it happen. also an understanding, again, of how to build an organization functionally and fit in the roles within those functional boxes. It's pretty clear from what you're saying also how you were very thoughtful about how to split roles. You're thoughtful about the use of your time, and I'm assuming you're thoughtful about what your strengths And weaknesses are, right? It's come across in the conversation so far that I think, you know, part also of growing older is you sort of know what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? I mean, when you're fresh out of school, again, there is the thought of being the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates is going to cross anyone's mind, right? And very quickly you realize, well, you know what? I'm really just good at these things and I need to surround myself with people who are good at these other things, right? Candidly, How hard was it, before we get into the actual business itself, but just this whole inception, you know, you closed a seed round at a time when Luna was crashing, Three Arrows was in the process of imploding. How hard was it to get going and to convince people?
1: So we actually started that process. So we were doing pre-seed December, January, February. And we crossed paths with the two VCs who would eventually become lead and co lead VC, Local Globe and Illuminate Financial, I believe, end of January and early February, respectively. And so those conversations through to like the term sheet and then ultimate final stages, as you well know, like that's a long process. So at that point, the die was already cast. As we were getting the wires in, you know, Terra Luna is falling apart. So for us, actually the invasion was a bigger issue because suddenly private markets got really, really nervous. And we had VC conversations along the lines of take a meeting, we do a pitch, yeah, we're not doing any investments anymore. Like we'd hear that like a couple days after the pitch. Like it wasn't just no, we don't take your pitch. It's like, no, we're not deploying funds at all, was the feedback. There were specific impacts to it. We were looking at an outsourcing firm based in Lviv in the west of Ukraine. And then asking questions of is our bank going to let us transfer funds to this outsourcing firm? And can we take that risk at the same time that we're trying to raise and you know, struggling because the market was cooling at that point, and crypto wasn't, but like just VZ more broadly was people were becoming more risk-sensitive in that kind of February-March period because of just what was going on around the world. And so that, it was a close-run thing. And, you know, Ilya, Jying and I, funnily enough, the week before we signed the term sheet, we essentially agreed of what we would do if the round didn't close, of, like, how we would wind things down. Because at this point, we had, like, eight... $900,000 $900,000 worth of pre-seed capital, and we just hit the gas on building up the team because we knew we had to move quickly. And so our burn rate had gone up, but we were still hadn't closed the other leg of the deal. So it was this kind of
0: unusual moment where we were about to succeed at the raise, but we
1: were planning the end of the company.
0: I remember that time well. That's why I sort of wanted to go through that and hear it in your own words, you and I had conversations at the time, and I remember thinking how thorough you were. And this is also a common theme in your approach to things to even most people going through the roller coaster ride that you went through and continue to go through. I mean, that's something that listeners need to understand. It never stops, it's not a cushy job at a bank or at a large organization the ups and downs are very acute, right? And so this was a time where I remember most people would have disintegrated. And I know the pressure was very high, but at the same time, you were very thoughtful, you and your team about, all right, well, if things go wrong, this is what we will do, right? But at the same time, we have a plan and we're gonna carry on and see where it takes us. And I remember being very impressed with the fact that again, most people would not have a living will. Most people would just disband and say, okay, we'll just clean it up and we'll figure it out. You actually had a plan for both scenarios. And I thought that was very impressive. So now that you've got money and you've been at it for at least six to eight months now, you've obviously hit the gas pedal. You're going out and trying to build a business. Talk to us exactly about what the business is Who are your main target customers and market?
1: Core of the business is risk. So the thing that that whole ideation process yielded in the fall of 2021 was a look around at the institutional crypto stack. And you were going through, it's like, okay, custody is very well established. Execution, which was my background on the technology side, very well covered, a lot of pretty strong incumbents, uh, data analytics, et cetera. Like going through it, And we looked at it, it's like, okay, who's doing risk? It's like, okay, nobody is doing risk. Like, that is insane. You know, risk technology is incredibly important, and it's this highly volatile asset. And so we decided to just go 100% on that as a risk specialist for digital assets. So the plan and what we kind of launched with Design Partners July 1st of last year with Serenity was to build risk models and kind of all the supporting data models and tools that active asset managers in digital assets would require. So, who are kind of your initial go to market active asset managers in crypto? Well, it's the crypto native hedge funds. And so, a lot of the early conversations and two out of our three first design partners were crypto native hedge funds. The third was a market maker. So, in the broader sense, we kind of look at anybody who's actively managing and importantly, Taking principal risk, not an agency business for a diverse portfolio of digital assets. So, if they're doing like riskless principal or they're doing agency trading or they're just doing custody, generally not a potential client for CloudWall. But if they're warehousing risk in some fashion as a prop trader, as an OTC desk, but principally as a hedge fund, that is kind of the initial go to market. Client for us. And in terms of what we built, risk attribution, stress testing, VAR tools, option pricing, volatility surfaces, yield curve, bootstrapping. So, all the things that, you know, again, kind of running through the stack, just you have to have that if you're managing a complex book to help quantify, monitor the risks, but also to inform your decisions. Like, this is something that we talked about early on that a risk system is, it's not just like a security blanket or an insurance policy. It should actually help inform the risks that you choose to take, as well as the risks that you seek to avoid. So just kind of understanding the dynamics of the portfolio and the risk within is something. We wanted to create a very sophisticated solution for doing that, that was crypto native, Right now, every asset in our universe, a crypto asset or a stable asset, the system is generally meant for any underlier. But right now, you know, for our initial go-to-market, it is for crypto. And yeah, so it's a lot of small hedge funds that are kind of our initial targets for go-to-market. And just kind of going back to your earlier point about those difficult times and dealing with it and planning ahead in a way, at another pivot point right now, in that this weekend's release is our first production release. And so we're going to market right now at yet another very difficult period in crypto, and a particularly difficult moment for our chosen first market segment, with a lot of the crypto hedge funds have been drawn to the honeypot of FTX's uh, liberal cross-margining policies. and ending up with lots of assets stranded at the worst possible moment. So once again, we're having those conversations about what happens at the end if this doesn't work, but also what is the plan for the next six months? What do we have to deliver on Q1 and Q2 this year so we're in a good place by the summer of 2023? You said it just right. It's like it never stops there's no kind of slowdown moment generally with startups.
0: It is it is a process of controlled chaos. It's something that you're just plainly not used to, again, in a more stable environment where the business is institutionalized, it's very well packaged, it's highly repeatable. Of course, that's the, the limit of the function you're gunning for, right? You know, it's sort of like running risk, literally, on some level, right? And you just have to accept that it is A set of draws. It's a probabilistic process. It's not deterministic, right? Hopefully you have a drift and it's going up, but there's going to be a lot of variance around that. And you know, you have to build an organization and processes that are robust to those draws, right? As the curve hopefully keeps going up. And not just linearly, because the expectation from investors is the drift is actually positively convex with variants around it. How do you think about pricing in this environment? Obviously, one of the things that's important is to build reliable, steady revenue streams because that impacts how your business is going to be valued. But at the same time, there's this notion of I was talking to another founder in the execution space where you know your clients want you to partner with them. You know, they want you to share the ride on some level, which goes against the interest of your own stakeholders. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you guys have been thinking about pricing? So one
1: basic principle, and this is nothing new to us, and I think it's just good general practice with startups, is trying to align pricing with the value that you're delivering and not necessarily the cost of delivering. Obviously, you also need to think about the latter. So In kind of our tiering of pricing, since we were targeting hedge funds and for active asset management to start, it's kind of natural to use as the principal driver the AUM of the hedge fund. Recognizing the fact that when an early stage hedge fund is building a track record, they don't have a lot of money to pay for any systems at all. They're trying to direct as much capital as possible to building that track record and then achieving their goals which is to go out to allocators and market, et cetera, and raise more funds. So one of the nice things about aligning it that way is that if you can kind of set pricing that works at that stage, and if you can build risk processes for them and actually help them tell a better story to those allocators about as they're going through due diligence, et cetera, about the risk management of that fund, then when they successfully are now a hundred million a u m then we align our pricing with the fact that, look, serenity is managing a much much larger pool of risk right now, so we thus try and grow with the clients. I think the last thing which I agree, you really do have to be careful and sharp about this, like you're often kind of in between your stakeholders. And it's more than just your investors because the employees have just as much of a share in the company, the founders, outside investors, early friends and family. You've got all of these people who, of course, want you to be as sharp as possible in terms of you know, driving that hockey stick of revenue. But sometimes what's good for profit is bad for business. And so recognizing that sometimes you actually have to work with people where they are in order to develop the early product and accommodate that, like that has to be part of it too. And so dealing with the fact that a lot of the funds are challenged right now, there's a lot of startup funds that have kind of spun out of the wreckage that are not in a place to support a hefty annual fee for a subscription. You have to have a pricing model that just recognizes that's reality. But equally to the story to the investors and everyone who cares about the ultimate success of the company. You then have to show that that can get turned into a steep revenue trajectory later if it works, so that's the needle we're trying to thread right now of how can we get to market an environment that's fragmented and quite cost sensitive right now just because of the circumstances, but ensure that if it actually works, the company kind of shares in the upside of that.
0: makes sense and have you thought about? other market participants that you could go after? Have you also thought about sort of seeding the market in the form of like maybe a really tiny subset of the functionality in the form of a freemium to increase the footprint?
1: Yeah, both of those came up. And for the freemium one specifically, it's specific to how Serenity was built. It is possible for us to do that. But it would require changes to serenity that would draw focus from other things that we need to do this spring. So, we did make a conscious decision not to go that way because I'm sure you know with your experience kind of the other challenge of this particular moment where kind of you have a first fully ready product and you're starting to go to market but you don't have full product market fit yet. You so you still have a product market gap. And so for us investment wise the thing in q1 and q2 we're prioritizing is close as much of that gap for that target group of clients as possible and so there's a trade off between the work that would be needed to support a freemium offering to like get really wide deployment versus having something that 70% plus of crypto hedge funds would look at and say yeah that's functionally complete for what i need cuz there's a wide range of strategies out there. And there's potentially different mixes of functionality needed to cover the full market. So we decided it was better to focus on building something more complete at this stage. But yeah, I mean, that's, it's always about choices. Like you have limited resources, very limited resources in a startup. And just kind of going back to one of your earlier points, just to touch briefly on this, when people look at the startup and say, like, oh, you know, the founders have this experience, it kind of addresses the question of like, oh, if it succeeds, can this person you know, manage a 100-person startup, a 100-person company? And so it's easier for them to say yes to that if you have a lot of experience versus you're right out of school. The flip side of that is you then get asked, can you scale down? Are you able to do something cheap and cheerful? Can you actually deal with the chaos and the small environment and all that? And that's a perfectly valid question for a more experienced founder. We're doing the best we can to kind of thread the needle of going out to market to a a small, very sophisticated group of clients who have high-end needs and expectations, but also the fact that they're small, the market is still nascent, and not over-engineering it but i think actually committing to those group that group of users who we've been talking to for over a year and building something that we know is the right product for them as the market recovers we think that's the strategy to go with and again it comes back to focus
0: yeah you have to have a beachhead you have to have there's that tendency of any business whether it's consumer focus or b2b to say we're going to be the one product for everyone or we're going to be the everything for everyone no Focus, again, in a beachhead, a community of users that have strong engagement, strong need, understand them, serve them well, because they'll vouch for you and then increment and then iterate. So you're right. I mean, look, the bet can work or not, but you have to do it. You have to focus. You have to take that risk of saying we have this small audience and we're going to try to understand it as best as possible. And do the best job we can because these are the people we're going to talk to our Series A investors. These are the people who are going to talk to our next customers, right? And your next wave of customers might be a completely different set. This has been a very, very difficult year for the quote unquote sell side part of the market in crypto. And I know that decentralization fans have an issue with this terminology, but the reality is we will need strong, well managed, well risk managed dealers in the space. And the reality is most of the big ones have been obliterated in the past year. So you're left with a market that has more hedge funds than there are sell-side counterparties to trade with. And so I anticipate that when new entrants come in, whether they're TratFi or they're new entrants, you will be able to serve that community as well. What do you think needs to change in the space for it to thrive? So I think one that's, and this is the overall arrangement,
1: The model of centralized parties that are unregulated, that bring together multiple functions that properly need to be segregated, or if they are kept together, you need Chinese walls that are monitored and enforced, that clearly cannot stand. So what I'm talking about here is exchange plus market making plus custody in the case of FTX. that could be made to work, maybe if you have a highly regulated institution and surveillance and really good internal structures, which was true of none of those companies, or you have to separate them. And the separation allows for some really interesting opportunities like off-chain order books, but on-chain custody, or off-chain order book and an institutional grade custodian. I think we're going to be seeing like a lot of like breaking apart of the pieces and rearrangements of what combinations make more sense. So I think in a way, ironically, given the sort of ethos of decentralization around crypto, the thing crypto got most wrong was centralization. And I don't believe that the answer is to go all the way toward decentralization immediately either. Like that's not a practical response. That was kind of the knee jerk response right after FTX. There has to be some kind of compromise. And then that would be the other thing. And again, it's not, you know, as you said, a strong word to say it's wrong about crypto. But you know, there are a lot of people in the space who are really passionate to ideological degree about the ethos of crypto and thus are maybe unwilling to consider compromises and hybrids because they kind of impinge on a belief it can't possibly be good if somebody else has my keys. And reality, and your point earlier about like risk applying to more than just trading risk, we talk all the time, whether it's in technology, whether it's in business, about the risks we choose to accept and the trade-offs, because it's always a trade-off. And so what do you get for that risk? And what are the compensating things, whether it's regulation or other controls? Sometimes people close off those conversations in crypto, and I think it's a problem. And I think one good thing about more people from TradFi backgrounds coming in is they've seen other models. They've seen other ways of doing it. And hopefully, if they're open-minded, can say like, all right, this was really useful. Like, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater here. But yeah, this other thing, you're absolutely right. That was like pure overhead and red tape. Like, let's not bring that along. But this sort of open-minded consideration of what could be combined it's kind of been missing, and I'm actually really pleased to see that that is actually starting to happen post FTX, because like people realize there needs to be a new arrangement, and so they're maybe a little more open to discussing what the possibilities are.
0: No, that's great. That's a great observation. And you know, whereas people are usually answer this by talking about new protocols and new technologies being built, you're talking about the mindset. And I think it starts with the mindset. It has to start with the mindset. It has to start with diversifying and broadening the builder base, the adoption base. And to your point about custody, and this is a controversial topic, obviously, given the initial ethos of Bitcoin in the early days of crypto, the reality is both institution and retail users are going to want sophisticated and convenient solutions to that problem, right? And so I think we need to focus more on the application and use cases for adoption, which then spurs trading and trading in assets that we and you and I haven't even thought of yet, right? We will be trading things 10 years from now on the blockchain that are not being traded today. And they will be big parts of financial markets. There will be price discovery, there will be an exchange of value, and there will be market makers making money, whether they're automated or not automated. And so I think it's very important that the mindset and the philosophy starts evolving. I think there's a a new urge towards transparency. I'm talking to various people who've been in this space for a while who agree that having more transparency over what risk people are running. Who you're actually interacting with. Whether it's disclosed to the whole world or it's within the confines of the agreement between the counterparties, having this notion of transparency is something that also needs to be baked in, right? And maybe it's a different philosophy than exists in TradFi. TradFi has always been opaque for a reason to protect economic interest and then heavily regulated. Maybe there's a paradigm where transparency agreed upon as almost a standard actually relieves us of the need for overregulation and red tape? That's something to think about. I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I just want to throw that in the ring for people to consider. What do you feel you need to accomplish in the next 12 months? And what are the metrics that you're going to look at very carefully? You're obviously very thoughtful. Your team is. You guys don't strike me as flying by the seat of your pants. What is the plan and how do you measure how well you're doing along the way? So the key
1: measure at this stage is around revenue. So it's around the rate at which we're able to onboard clients, retention of clients, the annual contract value, the ACV for those clients, growth rates in monthly revenue. Like those are the kind of key measures because that's the thing that I think they're the most questions around right now. I think sometimes people worry that, you know, risk in crypto is, you know, like the old Woody Allen joke about the weather, it's something that everybody talks about, but it doesn't do anything about it. Because of the fact that white space from fall of 2021, always in the back of everybody's mind, is is it there because nobody cares? And unfortunately the best measure of do they care is people put good money on the line and say i'm actually going to take this out of my budget in order to do this. And so i'm very skeptical of kind of softer measures. It's not that we don't look at usage and stickiness and all of that, but i think at this stage like just simply proving that this is something people value enough that they're paying for it. Uh, particularly as there's so many services in crypto that are very low cost or free to a lot of these providers. I think that's a key thing that we just we have to eliminate all doubt on that. The other thing that we're going to spend a lot of time on, this is more on the product side, and this is a more technical measure. We put a lot of investment into the monitoring of the system and you know trying to be a cut above in terms of reliability. So finding ways to measure and really tracking that it's a 24 by 7 market, you know, that It's actually equal to the challenge and there because one of the easiest ways to lose a really demanding client is when they most need you to not be there. And so, you know, that's kind of maybe secondary. The first one is very much primary front of mind. And then kind of the last thing is about timing. My view is it's not that we're not thinking about 12 months ahead. It is that the closer months are just so incredibly important to the company that the really detailed thinking about sequencing and metrics, et cetera, is really around Q one and Q two right now. Because if we're not there, you know, by the middle of the year, then having a goal for the end of the year is almost academic. One a member of our board put it best. He said, when I'm talking to someone about their measures and their goals, I always start with what are this month's goals and how are you tracking to them? Because if you're off on that, forget about talking about twelve months from now. So lead generation wins. How much are we charging? Like, those are the things that we're looking at most right now and trying to get that in as early as possible.
0: It fits your approach to most of the things you've discussed today, which is you talk to a lot of founders and a lot of times you get these hand wavy answers, sometimes because it's hard to come up with an answer, but sometimes because. There isn't a whole lot of thought going into what is a business and what is the purpose of a business. The purpose of a business is not to code and build product all day long. The purpose of a business is to make money, and that was your number one. And so I think you were very aligned there with your stakeholders and saying, you know, I could come up with all these hand wavy metrics of engagement and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we need ARR, we need IACV, we need those metrics to start at least showing the embryon of attraction and the embryon of what this could become, right? So I command you for that. I think that's certainly a response that will get your board in agreement and in support for what you're trying to accomplish. Reliability is absolutely paramount because we live in a world where we're not just building software, we're delivering it as a service. And service delivery needs to be dial tone And if you don't hit those marks, then you don't have a business. You're not running on-premise software like we did 20, 25 years ago. So it's also important that you have that as sort of a key yardstick that you're looking at. It's been great chatting today. I feel like we could unpack so many more things, especially, you know, and maybe a topic for another podcast on more of the technical side of how you've gone about implementing the system. But I really wanted to focus on The Business Foundation talking about you as a founder and what differentiates you, your team, your offering, your company from other competitors. And I think that came across very well throughout the podcast. I think you have a unique approach. I think your team is very seasoned. And as also shown, and you and I chat regularly, I know how hard you work and you have shown a tremendous amount of energy and persistence. And I'm convinced it's going to pay off. So I look forward to seeing the progress over the next few months. Because as you said, the next six months really matter. Would love to do a follow-up, more technical discussion if you ever have time. The invitation is outstanding. And I want to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Maxime. And yeah, look forward to giving you a very positive update some months from now.
0: This podcast is produced by Radio Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Not investment advice.